Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, August 9th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, spoiler alert. That's something that is used immediately before revealing the ending uh, or any crucial details of a book, movie, TV show, play, you name it, right? And I'm about to drop a few spoiler alerts on you, so just be forewarned. Actually, it's more the topic of spoiler alerts uh, that I wanted to uh, address this morning. Robert Farr Capon, in his book, Parables of the Kingdom, remarks that most authors uh, tip their hand as to what they're really up to in the last few chapters of their book, uh, which may seem like a Captain Obvious kind of uh, statement, but stick with me here because I'm going to come back to this in just a moment. And like I said, spoiler alerts are coming. So if we look back at the last chapters of some famous uh, films or stories, uh, we might discover that, say, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy never really was in a foreign land of technicolor, but uh, she had a concussion during the tornado that caused her to dream it all. Nevertheless, this ending revelation was really about Dorothy coming to know herself and to really better understand those people that were in her lives already that she may not have fully appreciated before. In Star Wars Episode Four, the movie ends with Luke Skywalker and the Rebel Alliance not only attacking the Empire's dreaded weapon of mass destruction, the Death Star, but surprisingly overcoming all odds and actually destroying it, which said that hope, though seemingly small, can grow to become incredibly powerful and that good can ultimately triumph over evil despite the odds. In the story... Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, it wraps up with young Harry Potter facing off with the sinister Lord Voldemort, who had been living in a symbiotic relationship with Professor Quirrell under his turban on the back of his head. And if you've never read the story or seen the movie, don't ask. <clears throat> anyway, yet the uber-powerful Lord Voldemort is not able to destroy Harry Potter at the end of this book and movie. And we begin to see that there's something exceedingly special about this boy who lived, something that even the most evil entities cannot overcome. In M. Night Shyamalan's 1999 supernatural thriller, The Sixth Sense, we follow the story of Cole Sear, a young boy who can both see and talk to dead people. And Dr. Malcolm Crow, a child psychologist who is trying to help this troubled child. In the end, and like I said, spoiler alert, we discovered that Dr. Crow was actually uh, one of the ghosts that only Cole could see. And he was the one who was actually helping Bruce Willis's character to come to grips with his own death, despite our thinking the entire film that it was the other way around. You see, when you know where a story is going, you can then go back and reread it or rewatch it with fresh eyes, and you can begin to see aspects of the story that you may have missed before because you didn't know where it was headed. But now that you do, it opens up new realms. Now, I promise to get back to Robert Capon. Here's what he wrote. Most authors tip their hand as to what they are really up to in their last chapters. The Holy Spirit is no exception. 
The last book of the Bible is a gold mine of images for what God has had in mind all along. The Bible is about the mystery by which the power of God works to form this world into the holy city, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He goes on to say that the Bible really isn't about someplace else called heaven, nor is it about somebody that's off at a distance called God. He says, rather, it is about this place here and all its thisness and placiness and about the intimate and immediate Holy One who at no distance from us at all moves mysteriously to make creation true both to itself and to him. And if you know this, Capon posits, then you can go back and reread the Bible with fresh eyes, seeing how God is working to accomplish this new creation. So welcome to week two in our sermon series entitled Parables of the Kingdom. And I started with spoiler alerts earlier because I think it's important that we remember why it is we're studying parables in the first place. Right? During these four weeks of parables, we'll be examining uh, all parables connected to the kingdom of God. Jesus told a variety of different kinds of parables, parables of grace, parables of judgment, but these are parables about the kingdom of God. Not about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin, or whether Methuselah's 969 years of life were the same length of years that we have today, or even about the topic of why God allows suffering to happen in the world. No, this is about the kingdom of God. It's about the new creation that God will one day build, not somewhere else, but right here on planet Earth. It's about fulfilling God's original vision for what we and this world were created to be. It's about how we can align our lives with the things that God cares about. But as we saw last week with the parable of the sower, just because we know a parable doesn't mean we really know a parable. Jesus' parable is if we're willing to get our hands dirty, so to speak, and dig deep enough, we still might find that they have something new to teach us. So that's what we're doing. I invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible apps to the book of Matthew chapter 13. And if you have the church app, uh, you can click on the opening page to the Bible section. It will take you there to chapter 13 and then just forward ahead to verse 31. Matthew 13 verse 31. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of all shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. For starters, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have the parable of the mustard seed. And spoiler alert, if we want to jump to the end of the story, like the end of the whole biblical story... This parable is for us. Capon posits what Jesus might be saying to his followers in this deceptively simple parable. This could actually be a spoiler alert for the ultimate end of what God has in store for God's kingdom. Capon writes this. All you get here is the peaceable kingdom. The sun shining in the sky, birds flying in and out of the shade, and all the little ones twittering away forever and ever. 
No elements of hostility to tempt you to think that the kingdom won't arrive unless you ride shotgun for it. And no elements of response to suggest that it might need your cooperation in order to come out right. Unless, of course, you consider larking around in the trees a proper response, in which case, that I'll let you have. So what is Capon getting at this? That if we're looking for some ultimate, bloody, apocalyptical confrontation between the forces of good and the forces of evil, we won't find that here. Like the parable of the sower that we looked at last week, once again, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is the very thing that is sown. It's not something that's produced after the seeds have planted and grown. No, it's like a mustard seed that is planted in a field, Jesus says. And he doesn't say that it's sown in only a portion of the field. No, he implies that the mustard seed is sown in the entire field, which again, like the parable of the sower, uh, tells us that the kingdom of God is everywhere, something that we'll see even more with our next parable. Now, Jesus mentions that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds, which, well, it's not exactly true. The orchid seeds are even smaller than mustard seeds, but back in Jesus' day, it was widely known that mustard seeds were pretty small. And I think the main point that Jesus is making here, of course, is the contrast between the size of the seed when it starts out and then how it grows and how it ends up. Mustard plants usually reach a minimum of four feet in height, but they can grow as tall as eight to 12 feet. Now, granted, that's not even in the same zip code as giant sequoias, but it's a decent-sized bush that enables small animals and birds a place to take some rest. Michael E. Williams, in his Storyteller's Companion to the Bible Commentary, mentions that even back in Jesus' day, mustard was also used as a condiment. It could transform a bland food into a flavorful delicacy. And it was also used as medicine for problems ranging from snake bites to stomach troubles to sneezing to constipation. <laughs> but that's not where I see the subversive power of Jesus' parable. No, that came from a single sentence by Michael Williams that caused me to go down this uh, hermeneutical rabbit hole, if you will. He said, The mustard plant spread so rapidly that it was seldom planted in a garden. That caused me to to stop and, and, and think a little more and explore And I found uh, Ben Witherington III in his Smith and Helby's commentary on Matthew. He mentioned that there was this saying in the Jewish rabbinical commentary known as the Mishnah. The saying was, there's a warning to never plant a mustard seed in one's own garden. In fact, Pliny the Elder, the esteemed Roman author, wrote way back in 78 CE that once mustard has been sown it's scarcely possible to get the place free of it as the seed practically germinates as soon as it falls to the ground. Which then led me to an article from the LA Times from last April in 2019 proclaiming that last year's super bloom was actually bad news for Southern California precisely because of the growth of wild black mustard and the eventual fire hazard that that could cause for the hills in Southern California. You see, the plant germinates early in the winter before the native plants have taken hold. They shoot up to about six feet tall, the article says, hogging the sunlight with its thick stalks and laying down a deep system of roots that beats out the native plants for water. 
You remember driving around and seeing all those beautiful yellow hillsides in the spring? Yeah, wild mustard. Guess what, friends? Jesus compared the kingdom of God, are you ready? To an invasive weed. A noxious bush that gobbles up space and overruns whatever is planted alongside it. So how subversive is the kingdom of God as God plants this weed in the world on purpose? Now, it doesn't seem like much when it's just a seed that you're holding in the palm of your hand, does it? But just you wait, just you wait. Now, do you think this is just a one-off by Jesus in the parable department? Nope. I submit the mustard seed is a harbinger for the second parable on today's docket, the yeast. Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Now, for starters, yay Jesus for making the surrogate for God in this parable as a woman. There aren't many passages in the Bible that give equal time to the female images for God, but this is one of them, and it's very important, especially if you believe what Genesis 1.27 says, and that is both male and female were made in the images, in the image of God. So we need to have these female images of the divine. Now, yeast, or leaven, is an interesting choice of topic for a parable by Jesus. Yeast didn't have a very positive connotation in the Bible. We can go back to the Passover event. The Israelites were instructed to remove all the yeast from their homes and instead bake unleavened bread. Jesus warns the disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 speaks about celebrating a festival, not with the old yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Then again, maybe that's exactly why Jesus chose to use yeast here in this parable. Once again, turning what people expected about a topic completely on its ear. Now, let's talk specific, shall we? Jesus says the woman mixed some yeast with three measures of flour. Now, anyone want to hazard a guess, without Googling it, how much three biblical measures of flour are? Roughly equivalent to 128 cups. That's 80 pounds of flour. And then you're going to have to mix another 42 or so necessary cups of water. uh, And suddenly you have over 100 pounds of raw dough. 100 pounds. that's, That's way more than your average baker would ever need. By the way, three measures of flour is mentioned only one other time in the Bible. It's in Genesis 18. Abraham and Sarah are visited by three strangers who later we discover turned out to be uh, angels. Abraham asks Sarah to prepare three measures of flour for their guests. Assuming the five of them didn't need actually 101 pounds of raw dough, maybe this is a divine serving size from God. And Jesus says all of it was leavened. Because, as any baker will tell you, that's exactly how yeast works. Now, the NRSV uh, translation that we read here says mixed, but the Greek word is literally hid. So it could read, it is like yeast that a woman took and hid with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. 
When I served as pastor of IAEA United Methodist Church on the uh, Hawaii island of Oahu, I had a church member named Pansy, and Pansy had been a public school cafeteria worker uh, for many, many years. And at one time, she said she was getting up every morning uh, early in- enough to make 2,000 rolls every day for the students at her school. Well, one time, her manager decided that she would help her out with the rolls. Only the manager didn't want to get up super early like was needed uh, in order to make the dough, no pun intended. Uh, She decided, though, she would make the dough the night before, and then it would be ready when Pansy came in in the morning. It would save her a lot of time. Now, Pansy, knowing what happens when you make dough ahead of time, thanked her manager for wanting to be helpful, but uh, said that, no, the yeast would actually rise too much if you did it that far in advance. No, 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 it'll be fine. It will rise overnight, the manager replied. Just put the bowl of dough in the walk-in refrigerator, and it'll be fine. Not wanting to question authority, Pansy did as she was told. She said the next morning when she opened up the refrigerator door and walked into the place, the yeast was everywhere. It was uh, on the shelves, it was on the floor, it was on the door, it was even on the ceiling of the walk-in refrigerator, everywhere. It had exploded, which of course caused Pansy to have a great laugh at the expense of her manager, but then she was the one, Pansy, who had to clean everything up and make a whole new uh, batch of dough for the 2,000 rolls later that day. But that's the power of yeast, my friends. Jesus says the woman hid the yeast in the flour. Now, you could also say that, that the mustard seed was hidden when it was sown into the ground, right? It was dug up and buried into the soil, covered with dirt, and it was only then, after it had been hidden or buried, that the mystery of growth and the kingdom takes over as it shoots forth. Robert Capon reminds us that if we wanted to, I mean, if we had the time, we could go back into that field and we could dig up every single mustard seed that had been hid or planted in the soil. And we could remove it if we wanted to, right? If we had the time, we could do that. Not only that, but there's always uh, more of the field that is unsown than the field that is sown. That makes sense, right? That plants sprout up wherever seeds have been planted, but there's always a portion of the ground in any garden that is still ground because not, there's not seeds right in that exact spot. But if we're talking about yeast, there is no part of the dough, once the yeast has been hidden, that isn't affected by it. And I mean, you could hunt all that you wanted to, but Once it's been mixed in, you won't be able to take those yeast pellets, seeds, grains back out, will you? No matter how hard you try, because yeast gets dissolved into the liquid, and that liquid permeates the dough. So, if Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like yeast hidden, then I'd venture to say that the lump of dough into which it's hidden is the world. And if we're taking that spiritual insight of the leaven uh, to its logical conclusion, we could say that not only has God's kingdom permeated the entire world, all of the world, but there has never been a time when this world was not hidden with God's kingdom. Right? Jesus could be implying in this very short parable that from the start of this uh, batch of dough known as the world, from the very beginning of creation, the kingdom of God has been mixed in and hidden, beginning 
to leaven the world. Capon writes, For by which and in the very fluids that make and restore creation, by, by the waters on whose face the Spirit moved, by the mist that watered Eden, by the paschal blood on the doorposts, by the blood of the covenant on Sinai, by the waters of the Jordan and Jesus' baptism, by the blood and water from his side on the cross, and by the river of life in the new Jerusalem, the Word, who is the yeast, that leaves not one scrap of this lump of a world unleadened, has always been hidden in his creation. Which is a little bit different than the seed parables that we've been looking at, right? Like, there may have been a time when the fields were just empty fields before the seeds were sown and planted there. But every second, a bowl of dough is actually dough. The yeast has been inseparable from it. For every second that this world has been a world, the kingdom of God has always been hidden inside, working in ways that we can't always see. Not only that, but so intimate is this yeast to the entire lump. So immediate is the working of the kingdom into every scrap of this world that there is no way on earth at getting at it or even getting to it at all. No enemy can remove it. No divine baker woman can retrieve it. And none of us, as Capon says, odd bits of lump can separate it out either. It is there for the long haul. Which brings me to the final point that I want us to explore together, and that's how yeast actually works in dough. Yeast is composed of extremely tiny cells. 400 of them could rest side by side on the head of a straight pin. In fact, you can hold, uh, scientists tell us, 100 billion of them in your two hands. Yeast also grows very fast. Just ask Miss Pansy from IAEA, right? In commercial production, a 200-gram bottle of yeast, about one cup of yeast, can grow to 150 tons in just five days. That's enough to make 10 million loaves of bread. One cup of yeast in five days. And when yeast breathes, it gives off carbon dioxide. The bread dough traps the CO2 gas in millions of tiny bubbles, which then expand when they're heated, which causes the bread to rise. And you can see evidence of this, right, by the holes that you find in bread once baked. Now, you're all still with me on this, right? Because this is where it gets really good. Now, what else gives off carbon dioxide? Right, human beings do. We breathe in oxygen, we exhale carbon dioxide in our breath. Robert Capon wonderfully wraps up this parable by saying that the whole kingdom of God operates by warm breath, human and divine. In the beginning, Genesis 1 tells us when God created the heavens of earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. God spoke, God breathed out, and creation began. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma. Both mean the same thing, wind or breath. The Holy Spirit, God's holy breath, has been moving from the beginning of history. The Gospel of John tells us 
that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, of course, is Christ Jesus. And then after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and this took place. John 20, 21 and 22, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father have sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended to be with God, the book of Acts says that that same Holy Spirit came upon the early church as the sound of the rush of a mighty wind. And all began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them ability. And ever since that day, we've been using our breath to proclaim the gospel. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, since the world and all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust in him into the way of salvation. I'm telling you, I think Capon's got it right. The kingdom of God operates on warm breath. Isn't it? Amazing, friends, that in this lump of a world that we find ourselves in, the kingdom of God has been hidden in and among us so intimately that nothing can separate us from the divine word, from the yeast, from God. Nothing. The whole kingdom of God operates on warm breath. We began this message talking about spoiler alerts, right? The end of whatever book or movie or story it is that the author is telling. Well, in these parables, Jesus is teaching us a radical new idea about the kingdom of God. That there is so much wrong with the world right now. It can be overwhelming and downright discouraging. Especially during this global pandemic. But fear not, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is already here. It has been hidden in the earth since the very Uh, beginning of creation and like yeast it has been mixed in so well that it is creating a powerful reaction that will at the right time come bursting forth so may we live lives as people of hope may we believe that what jesus says in this parable in these parables is true and may we open ourselves up to however it is that god uh, wants us to be a part of this crazy subversive plan to save the world. Thanks be to God for new insights on familiar stories. And all God's people said...